Welcome to Music History Monday for November 21st, 2022. I'm Bob Greenberg, and the title for today's podcast is Henry Purcell and British Music Restored. If you haven't already, please consider joining me on my subscription site at patreon.com slash robertgreenbergmusic, where I blog, vlog, podcast, pontificate, review, and bloviate four to six times a week. We mark the death on November 21st, 1695, 327 years ago today, of the English composer and organist Henry Purcell in London. He lies buried today in a place of singular honor, adjacent to the organ on which he performed in Westminster Abbey in London. He had been born there in London on or about September 10, 1659, making him only 36 years old when he died. But like both Mozart and Schubert after him, Purcell's terribly premature death did not preclude him from writing a tremendous amount of music of the very highest quality. Purcell's music, sacred and secular, utterly defined his time, a time known in British history as the Restoration. Timing I know that the realtors among us will tell us that in the end, Everything is all about location, location, and location. Well, sorry to disagree, but in fact, in the end, nothing is more important than timing, timing, and timing. Hey, I love the city of Paris. It is my favorite urban location. But a successful visit to that magnificent location is dependent on timing. Had I chosen to visit in August 1348, I would have arrived simultaneously with the Black Death, and may very well have perished along with roughly 80,000 Parisians, fully one-third of the population. When I bought my first house, in 1986, I would have loved to have been able to buy one in a location called Piedmont, a lovely enclave located in the heart of Oakland. A great location, yes! But I, actually we, my wife and I, couldn't buy in Piedmont because we didn't have the bucks at the time, or at any time for that matter. The message? Location without timing is useless. So, location versus timing. Henry Purcell could have been born in any major metropolitan area in England in 1659, in London, Norwich, York, Bristol, Newcastle, Exeter, Ipswich, Great Yarmouth, or Oxford. Every one of those locations had institutions that would have allowed Purcell to be educated as a musician. But the extraordinary opportunities that allowed him to not just become a composer, but to thrive as a composer were strictly a matter of timing. Writes Robert King, quote, Purcell began his musical upbringing as a boy chorister. There is nothing inherently unusual about that, for many British musicians have, over the years, been fortunate enough to have that unequaled education. But had he been born just a few years earlier, this, Purcell's musical education, 
would have been impossible. Fortunately, within a few months of his birth, the Puritan rule of Oliver Cromwell came to an end, and the monarchy and the Anglican Church were restored to Britain, releasing with it a burst of musical creativity and life that has never since been repeated. By the 1680s, when Purcell's genius was flowering, London was buzzing with newly written music for the church, the royal and private chapels, the newly founded concert halls, the theaters, and even the taverns." Unquote. Timing. For those of us familiar with the late and great Hilary Mantel's Wolf Hall slash Thomas Cromwell trilogy of historical novels, the story of the rise and fall of the English Commonwealth or Interregnum, 1649 to 1660, is a familiar one. For the rest, I offer up a short history lesson, because for the British at least, the ramifications of that interregnum resonate to this day. I will be forgiven in advance for simplifying and rendering narrative what was in fact a profoundly complex series of simultaneous events. Yeah, pardon me for bringing this up, but this is always the challenge of writing about history. I love a good linear narrative story as much as the next person, oh, frankly, probably more. But history isn't linear. In reality, events happen simultaneously and influence each other in often completely unpredictable ways. Yet when we write about those events, when we create a narrative, we render the simultaneous linear, and in doing so, we twist and alter the nature of reality to fit the needs of storytelling. Well, so be it. Parliament The Parliament of England was the legislature of the Kingdom of England, which was replaced by the Parliament of Great Britain in 1707, which prospers to this day. It was the Parliament of England that created the necessary preconditions for Henry Purcell's musical education, professional opportunities, and ultimate success, so it is an institution we must know something about. It was rooted in the 10th century Anglo-Saxon tradition of the Witten, which were deliberative assemblies of nobles and prelates prelates meaning high-ranking members of the Christian clergy. Wittens met regularly during the year and served various functions, including electing kings, particularly when issues of succession were involved, receiving petitions and building consensus among the nobility, and witnessing appointments to office and the granting of lands and charters. The king consulted with Wittens on such major decisions as making treaties and going to war. What the king did not consult over with the Wittens was the levying of taxes, which was strictly a royal prerogative. After the Norman conquest of 1066, King William the Conqueror, who lived from about 1028 to 1087 and reigned from 1066 to 1087, continued to call the nobles to meet in order to make laws, deal with national issues, and conduct state trials. These were trials that dealt with offenses against the English state. 
Such an assembly was no longer called a witten, but rather a magnum concilium, Latin for great council. As with the Wittens, the great council had no say in levying taxes. However, this began to change during the reign of Henry II, who lived from 1133 to 1189 and reigned from 1154 to 1189. In order to finance the Third Crusade in 1188, Hank II imposed a 10% tax across the board on all revenues and properties, quote, with the exception of the arms, horses, and garments of the knights, and likewise with the exception of the horses, books, garments, and vestments, and all appurtenances of whatever sort used by clerks in divine service and the precious stones belonging to both clerks and laymen." Unquote. Henry and his people knew darned well that this tax, known as the Saladin Tithe, was not going to be popular, so a precedent was set. Henry asked the Great Council for its consent to levy the tax. For King Henry, in the short run, it was the prudent and politic thing to do, but in the long run, it created a world of hurt for the English monarchy, because by so consulting the magnates, the barons, the great men of the realm, Henry gave them a power over the monarchy they were not going to give back. Henry unwittingly put the monarchy and the magnates on a collision course, and that collision occurred in 1215. That was the year that King John, 1166 to 1216, reigned from 1199 to 1216, the youngest son of Henry II, was soundly spanked by the barons. He had it coming. King John was bad, bad news. He exhibited what the American historian Ralph H. Turner called, quote, distasteful, even dangerous personality traits, unquote. No doubt about that. He was petty, spiteful, and cruel. He abused his power in his dealings with the judiciary and the church and levied ruinous taxes on the nobility, the church, and on common people alike. History has been appropriately unkind to King John, who lives on as the villain in all the various depictions of the Robin Hood legend. In 1215, the English barons, fed up with their king, drew up a charter of liberties to which King John was initially forced to abide. Oh, he eventually repudiated the charter, went to war with the barons, lost the war, and then died. Known as the Magna Carta, the Great Charter, the document stipulated three points that became the basis for Parliament. Point one, the king was not above the law, but subject to the law. Point two, the king could not make laws and raise taxation without the consent of the community of the realm. Point three, the obedience of the king's subjects was conditional and not absolute. The Parliament of England came into being that very same year, 1215. 
initially a unicameral body made up of the magnates of the high clergy. It became a bicameral institution 50 years later, in 1265, with the election of commoners to a second house of the legislature. And so Parliament remains to this day, consisting of a so-called House of Lords and a House of Commons. We should in no way underestimate the miracle of the English parliamentary system, particularly in the 15th, 16th, and 17th centuries, when absolute monarchs on the European continent claimed to rule by divine right. Even such seemingly all-powerful English royals as Henry VIII and his daughter QE1 had to treat with Parliament in a manner that would have been unthinkable for, say, a king of France or a Tsar of Russia. Charles I, 1600 to 1649, reigned from 1625 to 1649. It would appear that Charles I didn't get the message regarding coexisting with Parliament. From the moment of his succession in 1625 at the age of 25, King Charles I and Parliament were at each other's throats over issues of royal prerogative. Chuck believed entirely in monarchial absolutism, that kings ruled by divine right, and as such, he could do anything he damned well pleased. He might have gotten away with simply having a bad attitude if he hadn't pushed too far, but in the end, he did two things that proved unforgivable. He married a Catholic woman and levied taxes without parliamentary consent. The English Civil War between Charles's royalists and the parliamentary armies of England and Scotland sputtered on and off from 1642 to 1646, at which time Charles and the royalists were defeated. No longer on the throne, Charles plotted with the Scots to invade England and put him back on the throne. The Second English Civil War played out in 1648. Charles, bless him, was beaten again. Parliament voted to actually negotiate with the disgraced King Charles, but a military coup led by Colonel Oliver Cromwell, 1599-1658, assured that no such negotiations took place. King Charles I was instead charged with treason. On January 26, 1649, he was condemned to death. Four days later, on Tuesday, January 30th, on a platform erected in front of Banqueting House in Whitehall, the building is still there, Charles's head was separated from his body via a single well-placed blow. Traditionally, in an execution involving treason, the executioner would hold up the head of the traitor to the crowd and bellow, Behold, the head of a traitor! Charles's head was so held up, but the words went unbellowed, unspoken, and even unwhispered, because the masked executioner did not want his voice to be recognized. On the day following the execution, the king's head was sewn back onto his neck and his complete body was embalmed and placed in a lead coffin. The English Commonwealth 
1649-1660, and the Restoration. The chief of the army, Oliver Cromwell, eventually became the head of state of the English Commonwealth with the title Lord Protector of the Realm. The House of Lords was abolished. Whether Cromwell's England was really a commonwealth or simply a military dictatorship under Cromwell himself is still debated. When Cromwell died in 1658, his son Richard Cromwell, 1626 to 1712, succeeded him as Lord Protector. But without Oliver Cromwell's charismatic leadership and force of dictatorial conviction, royalists who had been largely excluded from Parliament when the House of Lords was abolished, gained a majority in the House of Commons. In the spring of 1660, in what was a stunning turn of events, Parliament voted to reinstate the Stuart monarchy. Charles II, son of Charles I, returned from exile to London on May 29, 1660, the day of his 30th birthday. In one fell swoop, Parliament recreated and reinstated the English monarchy, and by doing so, became the central government organ of the British state, a role it retains to this day. For our information, with the advent of the Restoration, things did not go well for those commissioners or judges who had signed the death warrant for King Charles I back in 1649. Of the 59 commissioners slash regicides involved in the execution of King Charles I, 31 were still alive in 1660. A few escaped to the American colonies, but most were tracked down, tried, sentenced to death, and were then hanged, drawn, and quartered. Hanged, drawn, and quartered. Look it up. It's a really crappy way to die. Richard Cromwell, Oliver Cromwell's son, survived because he did not take part in King Charles's execution and he did not resist when it became clear that royalist forces were once again ascendant. However, his dead father did not fare as well. Oliver Cromwell was posthumously convicted of treason. His corpse was dug up and hung in chains from the gallows at Tyburn which today is occupied by the Marble Arch at the confluence of Oxford Street, Edgware Road, Park Lane, and Bayswater Road in London's most fashionable west side. The Restoration and Timing. Which brings us for now a full circle, back to the incredibly fortuitous timing of Henry Purcell's birth on or about September 10th, 1659, eight months before Charles II returned from exile to begin the Restoration. Aside from those unfortunate individuals involved in the trial and execution of King Charles I, the advent of the Restoration was cause for much celebration throughout England. You see, Oliver Cromwell was a Puritan, and as such, England under Cromwell and his son was a Puritan nation. The Puritans were a rather humorless, abstinent Protestant sect that believed that the Church of England was, in fact, covertly controlled 
by Roman Catholic slash Papist practices, practices that had to be rooted out and squashed at all costs. During his time as Lord Protector, Oliver Cromwell imposed rules against or outright banned all sorts of things that gave people pleasure. Theater was banned, as was, heaven help us, bear baiting. Musical instruments were banned in church services and their use discouraged in secular settings. The English government and church ceased being patrons of the arts. Christmas celebrations were banned. Religious feast days were banned. Colorful clothing and women's makeup were banned. Puritan makeup police and soldiers would roam the streets of towns, scrubbing off the makeup on any woman found to be wearing it. Women were encouraged to wear long black dresses that covered them from neck to toe with white aprons and their hair gathered behind their heads in a white bonnet. Yes, this is real, The Handmaid's Tale, and modern-day Iran stuff. Given all of this, and more, the English public was not at all unhappy to see the English throne restored in 1660. Writes the English conductor, harpsichordist, editor, and author Robert King, quote, the restoration of King Charles II in 1660 was one of the most significant events in English history, marking the end of years of civil war, a period which had huge consequences for English music and musicians. Charles II had spent some years in exile at the court of Louis XIV, and on his return to London urged composers to abandon the grave and solemn music of previous English compositional styles in favor of more up-to-date French and Italian styles. First-generation Restoration composers Matthew Locke, Pelham Humphrey, and John Blow, Purcell's teacher, did just that. Henry Purcell, born 1659, of the second generation of Restoration composers, was the most important English composer in the second half of the 17th century, and in his music, we can trace a plethora of styles. Polyphony derived from the English composers Byrd and Gibbons, together with modern French and Italian styles." Unquote. The Restoration brought England back to cultural life, and the Restoration represented an artistic wave that Purcell rode like Duke Kahanamoku. Purcell composed music for everyone and everything. He composed music for Westminster Abbey and the Chapel Royal. He composed music for the English monarchy. He composed keyboard and chamber music for the aristocracy. And he composed the two greatest English language operas written before the 20th century, Dido and Aeneas, of 1689, and The Fairy Queen of 1692, based loosely on Shakespeare's A Midsummer Night's Dream. When we return tomorrow, and Dr. Bob prescribes, it will be with Purcell's biography and a superb 11-disc recording of Purcell's complete sacred music as performed by the choir of New College, Oxford, the choir of the King's Consort, and the King's Consort. Until then, thank you. To sample and download one or all 
of my many courses on subjects musical produced by The Great Courses slash The Teaching Company, please visit my website at robertgreenbergmusic.com.